Welcome back to another Cardboard Herald Hangouts. This is the show where the contributors and friends of the Cardboard Herald hang out and talk about things we've been playing, things we've been doing, news, whatever it is, whatever we feel like we want to talk about. And today I'm joined by Luke Mensch, regular contributor to the Cardboard Herald, as well as seemingly involved in all sorts of board game pies on the internet. Welcome to the show, Luke. It's happy to be here. Yeah. All right, man. Well, you know, as is traditional fashion, we kick it off here with what we've been getting to the table recently so what have you been playing like what's what's the hot game i know you just had uh well you have like several game nights don't you you have like three game nights per week that are dedicated game nights well so usually uh my two dedicated are tuesdays and fridays tuesday is where i meet up with uh the other members of games on tape which is the uh, board game news organization that I'm a part of out in the Bethlehem area. And then Friday is the game night that I hold at my apartment when I'm not busy doing other things, although the next month is going to be wildly busy where I won't be able to be doing that for a while due to uh, going to Origins and uh, other commitments like that. That's but, awesome. Yeah, but I do, I do have... Uh, a lot of board gaming opportunities outside of those two days that I tend to attend frequently. Uh, in terms of the hottest thing that I've been playing recently, um, I mean, Vast the Mysterious Manor just hit Kickstarter literally yesterday. And over at PAX East, I had the opportunity to give that a whirl, uh, having been a huge fan of the Crystal Caverns previously. And not previously, I still enjoy it a lot, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, totally. Now, help me with Vast, because yeah. the, this is a, a point of shame for me. Like, I see <clears throat> these things on the internet all the time where it's like, here's my shelf of shame, here's all the games that I own that I haven't played. And for the most part, I'm like, oh man, that sucks that like, you're in that position, because I play all my games, like if I didn't have them... Uh, played, then why do I even own them? Right. Vast is the exception to that. I really want to play it, but every time I look at the the rule book and the idea of learning all that stuff and then coming back and getting together with friends because none of the people in my group have actually played it just sounds sounds so painful. Like just so much work to actually get to the the nut of the game. How do you overcome that? Like, it, how is it not an obstacle for you? Is it just a matter of we're old people and have kids and don't have as much time? Or is it just, you know, like it, it comes easier if you approach it from a different direction? I mean, it is a daunting uh, game for sure. Uh, when I first picked it up and was going through the rules, it was a little like, oh, okay. Um, there's like a million different rules and everyone has their own rule set, and it, it can be difficult in that regard to teach it. But what I found to be most useful – so for those who aren't familiar, uh, Vast and the Crystal Cavern is a – I would say the quintessential example of an asymmetric game. Every player is a different character in this uh, experience and each character has their own complete unique set of rules. Uh, each of the sets of rules could fall into their own genre. 
And um, so, for instance, the knight uh, kind of acts as the catalyst to build the board. Um, they're, they're basically the punching bag. She moves from tile to tile, uh, revealing different potential traps or events or a lot of negative stuff, but in adventuring gains experience points, which gives her access to more actions in the future. So the uh, traditional dungeon crawly type of role. Absolutely. And she has a deck of side quests that she can attempt to do to get even more, uh, experience points, which are called grit in this game. Which I find amusing because everything about her is just everything's attacking you all the time, and uh, there's just <sighs> it, it. It feels like the world's against you, so it feels that much better or that much more uh, rewarding when you overcome a lot of those obstacles. And her goal, everyone has their own goal. So her goal is to uh, slay the dragon, you know, in traditional fashion. Then there's the group of goblins who there are three of them that skitter around in the darkness in uh, tiles that haven't been revealed yet on the board. And they just kind of pop up where they where they can and try and surround and jump the knight because their goal is to defeat the knight. But how they go about that is they have three different decks of cards that they utilize where uh, the goblins get different resources based on the formation that they take at the start of a turn. And then they get different... Uh, secret cards or monster cards that they can spend like resources to try and strengthen their chances. So they're a lot more sneaky and manipulative and they're trying to kill the knight. The dragon's just trying to escape the cave because they're done with all of this BS. Like they just don't want to be a part of it. So, but the dragon is sleepy and they need to wake up. So you have to play cards out of your deck uh, to take certain actions which you have like a laundry list of uh, card combinations. There are three symbols that you can draw out of the deck and you use whatever combinations you want to do actions on your turn to try and wake up and escape. And you win when you've fully woken up and reached the entrance tile to get back out. Uh, the most interesting role that everyone is immediately drawn to is the cave itself. You're, you're the living embodiment of the cave that's like, ooh, I don't like anyone. I just want everyone to just die. I'm tired of everyone making noise. It's obnoxious. Go away. So your goal is to build the board and balance the game as much as possible so that nobody wins until you win. And how you win is you build the board to its fullest state and then collapse it back in on itself. And once you collapse certain tiles, the game ends and you win by just and it, it's an interesting way of self-balancing because you kind of have this overlord character who can move people around or twist tiles on the board and basically screw everyone else's plans up so that no one player is necessarily rushing ahead to victory too quickly yeah you have a vested interest in meddling in everyone else's affairs yeah and the fifth role is the the thief um the thief is not <laughs> – so it's funny. So when I talked to uh, uh, Mr. Lederman himself at PAX East, I mentioned that the, night, the, the thief honestly was probably the weakest role out of the base game stuff because basically how the role is written is you don't interact with anyone traditionally. You're sneaking around trying to pickpocket people and open vaults to get treasures and then escape. But – 
rather than having all of these goals where you're directly interacting with everyone, it's such a, a side role. Like I'm going to just hide in the shadows and avoid interacting with anyone really that it becomes, it feels so disjointed, like that fifth limb that's just kind of hanging off the side of the game. And so I talked to him briefly about it and he was like, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of how the thief came out either. I was thinking of potentially revisiting it down the road with a redesign of that character. So the thief is an option for a fifth player, but there are better options for the fifth player in uh, the expansion, which adds three new roles, and in uh, the Mysterious Manor. So the Mysterious Manor is a standalone game, right? Did you actually get a chance to check that out, or is yeah, this... no, I I played it absolutely okay. uh, over at PAX East. I got to sit down with Pat and uh, four, uh, three of my friends, and one. Uh, person who just was like, can I play? And we're like, yeah, absolutely. So I got the chance to be the paladin, ah, which um, is the replacement character for the knight. Basically, all of the characters are one-to-one replacements. So the knight is replaced by the paladin. The goblins are replaced by the skeletons, uh, which is just a horde. Uh, the, the skeletons look so cool. I'm really excited to see that. The uh, dragon is replaced with the Spider Queen that okay. has multiple transformations, which is just awesome. All right. I um, will forever be referring to that as Ungoliant. Mm-hmm. Shelob also works, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, what is it? Uh, the cave is replaced by the aforementioned manor, which functions very differently. And I think uh, to the benefit of the game, in my opinion. And uh, the thief is replaced by the enchanter, which is the one role that is still uh, not firmly set in stone. There's still playtesting being done, which I will uh, be playtesting that in the next couple of weeks, depending on when I can get my hands on a prototype copy. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for that because the the time that I spent with it already was super exciting. And it shows – so – Really quick to answer your earlier question, the best way to teach the game is for you as the owner to learn everything. Just sit down for like an evening or one evening, learn the night, and then the next evening, learn the goblins, whatever. Learn all of the roles, and then when you want to have a group of friends to come over to go, hey, I'm going to do this game thing. Uh, I'm going to send you the PDF off of BoardGameGeek of the rules for your specific character. Go ahead and read through those, familiarize yourself, and then when we sit down, I'm going to explain everyone's roles again, just so other players have a brief overview of what you do, and then we'll start playing. And like for me, that's the best way of approaching it, because it allows everyone to grow familiar with their role, but not worry too much about what anyone else does, and then get that brief overview and go, oh, okay, you're trying to murder me. I need to I need to take a step back from you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's something that I think I will get to the table, and that's why I haven't gotten rid of it yet. It's not something that I like just having on my shelf to look pretty, which it does look very pretty. It just uh, is one of those things where I have so many games coming in at this point for review, or you know, other people in my game group is wanting to you know play some new games that they have or we want to play you know classic favorites that we love and right 
it's so rare that I have a dedicated group. You know, once a week we have the big group that could support a four-player game consistently over. And so it's just a, um, a matter of saying one week, you know, this is actually Wednesday here. I could talk to my group and say, hey, next week we are playing Vast, and so... I'm going to be learning a bunch, but here's the PDFs for the roles that you guys want, and let's just make it a thing to play next week. So maybe oh, yeah. we'll do that. I mean, how long do, does it take for a session to play out? Usually two hours. I would say your first time will take two and a half. Okay. Uh, it's it's not too long. Realistically, uh, every player gets roughly seven turns. That's the goal of the game, uh, according to Pat, and I think that he succeeds in allowing that to happen because once you get familiarized with the roles, roughly everyone will have six, seven, maybe eight turns at most. Right. So, um, and you can play this game one to five players. It is not, uh, in my opinion, a one, two or three player game necessarily. Yeah. That's why I've been kind of, I guess, holding my horses on it because typically with games, I'd learn them just with my wife. I'd sit down, we'd play them, and then we get familiar, bring it to the group. But uh, yeah. in this case, it seems like it deserves having the, the four-player count to really shine as what it's intended to be. Yeah, absolutely. And also, with any of those player variants, how it goes about is you have a bunch of cards with extra, extra rules on them that clarify, okay, if you're only playing with this, then uh, the goblins have to have this token or whatever, and they have this special rule. And it just becomes so convoluted to learn the rules of the game and then have to go back and go, okay, there's all these stipulations for a three-player game and what characters are we even going to play with. And it just becomes messy and obnoxious. Um, the four-player game is where it truly shines. And I would say with the expansion, you could eke out a five-player game in a very mm. strong sense, just with a role other than the thief. Yeah. Um, but so um, I personally find this game to be one of the most rewarding games that I've played in a long time because of how much motivation I have to return to it. At this point, I haven't even had the chance to play all of the roles. I've played the cave, the knight, and uh, the dragon, and the unicorn, which is uh, the expansion adds three new roles, which is the unicorn, the ghost, and the ghoul. Mm -hmm. And the unicorn replaces the dragon, and honestly, I think it works a lot better than the dragon, because here's the thing. Here's the deal. Here's here's the lowdown, all right? <laughs> Give me the sit. So, Smoke on the streets. Yeah. So with each addition of this game, uh -huh. it's becoming more and more clear just how much better this team is getting at making this game. Each new iteration comes out with roles that are easier to learn, are more elegant to play, with better player boards that make it more clear what you're doing, and with just quicker, more engaging gameplay overall that I think shows a level of improvement that's impressive. So, like, the base game, the goblins have, like, so many cards they have a deck of cards that determine what their formation is at the start of the round then they have a deck of secrets and they have a deck of monsters but the decks work differently where the formations deck you always shuffle all the cards together before the start of your turn so you always draw in you could draw into anything mm -hmm. whereas the other two once you use those cards they go to a discard pile and then when the discard piles fill up then you reshuffle everything and so you have all these resources going around and it's like nuts 
the skeletons are like, yo, each skeleton has their own thing that they can do, but you're programming that how they come out onto the board. So each skeleton has a card that they use to just come out on the board. And it becomes a lot more elegant and a lot more clear how to sort of do that, how to sort of finagle and figure out how you want to set things up with that. So is there, um, a, reason, is there a reason to own the original when this newer, improved, essentially second edition of the game is coming out? I mean, if the, the skeletons are that awesome, you know, if the game is overall more elegant, more streamlined, you know, is vast of the crystal caverns just kind of a, a relic of the past or a different theme if people really 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 want the adventure hunting down the dragon theme or is it actually I mean, substantially different that you might want to own both here's the thing so vast in the crystal caverns i still super enjoy and i find it to be super engaging in what it does it was the first of its kind and it's got some really neat elements to it um, I own everything for it, all the content and stuff, and I think that there will be something in the original for you. While the Mysterious Manor allows for some characters to be improved upon or some more elegant stuff, I don't necessarily enjoy playing as, say, the paladin over the night. Because as much as I like the image of this, you know, shining paladin traveling into the world and taking on evil, the night for me was uh, a slightly more enjoyable... I would, I would say that I would enjoy playing both and having the option. And there's the thing at the end of the day is you can take the characters... Why don't we take the characters from one and put them somewhere else? Like, awful SpongeBob reference, whatever. You can combine <laughs> the games together and make it so that you can use the roles in one game in the other game. So you've got this huge amount of customization at your fingertips if you own all the content, which for me is super exciting because I want to make, like, the ultimate vast experience. And so by having access to all the content, I am able to pick and choose and go, okay, I really dig how the unicorn plays. I want that in most of my games. But, you know, having the option for the spider queen or for the uh, dragon, yeah. I think is viable. I, I try and keep all of my content to one box. So figuring out what my preferences are and then keeping everything else is like, uh, let's revisit that at some point and see how I feel, you know? Is the, do you know if the creative team still is Patrick Leader and David Somerville? I believe so, yeah. Okay. I know, obviously, Pat, but um, I'm really bad with names generally. Uh, both of those names sound correct off, off the cuff. And without you know googling yeah. it or anything well i am googling it i'm bringing it up <gasps> right now yeah oh my yeah. gosh so let's see because i've had both of them on the show actually patrick was one of the he was like the first big guy that i had on the show um it was very early on and a friend of mine was into print and play board games and that's kind of where patrick got his start and he kind of connected me to him, and this was right when the second printing of Vast just had its Kickstarter, and so it was like a, a big deal, and that was kind of like a big break type of thing. 
but um, yeah, this just has designer listed as Patrick Leader, uh, and Kyle Farron is still doing the arch on it, which is awesome. Nice. Kyle Farron does yeah. killer stuff. But if I go back and look at Vast itself, originally called Trove, if I remember correctly, because I did a name change on it. Uh, but if I look at Vast, yeah, Patrick Leader and David Somerville were the designers of the original. That's interesting. I, I, I wonder what the story is there that David wasn't involved because he was the original creator of vast itself i don't know if there mm -hmm. had been a, like a falling out or if you know he just you know wanted to go a different direction and said yeah go for it uh pat but uh david is the one who had kind of the the germ of the idea and then he started communicating with other designers on the internet and that's how he got looped in with patrick leader and sure you know, Patrick's very talented and he's a, he's a good publisher. Um, recently there was kind of the controversy surrounding, uh, deep, which was intended to be the follow-up to vast. And, um, I talked with Samuel Bailey, the designer on that, and he definitely had a very public falling out with Patrick leader and leader games. And I, I think that, uh, that was a, a, a mutually, detrimental like not mutually beneficial but like that that didn't help anyone and i think there were were bad decisions made on both sides of the fence regarding that but i i am interested in the narrative you know the story i i care less about who's right and who's wrong and more just about you know what got us to what place so um, maybe I'll reach out to either Pat or David to see if they want to talk about like where we are here. It could be that they just are completely amicable and they just uh, decided to separate and maybe David is going to get a credit for being the original designer or get a cut of something or maybe he sold the entire idea over to Patrick, whatever it is. Either way, it looks like a super cool game, and that artwork is incredible. Like, when I watched the uh, announcement video, I think it was an announcement video or, or something, uh, just recently, I was once again astounded by how imbued with character the characters are. You know, like, they, they really come to life and have a complete aesthetic to it, uh, where everything looks distinct, everything looks wild and crazy but at the same time cohesive and like they belong in the same universe together and that's it's so cool absolutely yeah i mean the the work that they they've done on every version of all all of the content that they've made honestly up until this point um i don't know much about root which is one of the games that they're going to be releasing I think in September or October is when it's supposed to come out. I know very little about that, but that's supposed to be another asymmetric experience that they've been touching on for a little while. So I'll be curious to see how that plays out. Well, to peek behind the curtain for people at home here, I'm looking at the Google Doc that we have open. Looks like you put Terra Mystica on here. What's your hot take on Terra Mystica? Because this is a game that... I had a brief affair with and then ended up trading away because I ultimately realized there were just other games that I'd rather play in my collection. But I know it's a beloved game at this point, and I've always been curious about the expansion. So you've been hitting it up a lot lately? What's, what's oh, going on? Oh, yeah. 
So Terra Mystica was a game that I played a lot when I first uh, got into heavy board gaming. It was a game that my friend Lowell in college picked up because it was like the heavy game and we were heavy gamers and we're able to, <laughs> you know, yeah, we could take it on. We can handle it. And we pl- we started playing it and we loved it. We just immediately were drawn to the experience as a whole. And, um, you know, for a while I was playing it for a bit, but as time went on, there felt less and less of an opportunity to bring it out because it was a heavy game. And when I graduated college, there was less people who I interacted with who could necessarily handle that level of gameplay. Um, Whenever Lowell and I do hang out, we usually try and pull it out in some capacity because that's just something we really enjoy doing. But outside of that, it's become more difficult. So a little while back, I looked at my shelf of games and I'm like, I haven't pulled that out in like a year. I need to get that back to the table and really take the time and try it out. And uh, the game still, in my eyes, holds up in a big way. There's there's this, uh, for those of you who haven't played, Terra Mystica is a game in which you are, it's a resource management game primarily, where you're a fantasy race who um, is terraforming the earth to try and make as much of the landscape uh, in your preferred um, environment. terrain format. Yeah, environment. So um, there's uh, 14 different races to play, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Um, seven different colors, double-sided boards, so 14. Um, and with the expansion, that increases to 20. Did the expansion uh, actually add more environments or, or like, uh, I guess, ecosystems or whatever? Yes, uh, but in wonky ways, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, because it's actually interesting how the expansion, to some degree, I think, uh, can take away from the base game if you're not careful. Um, but for... So you're terraforming the earth and you're trying to collect resources and you get points based on having the biggest city built and based on um, the magic track, which will allow you to um, – there's this whole sub-mechanic of magic, which is probably the most confusing mechanic about the game for many people, so I won't get into it. But there's a whole sideboard of like trying to get different levels in magic and then – you're getting points for building specific buildings on certain turns and so on and so forth. And so it's this giant puzzle that's laid out for you uh, each game. And depending on the race that you end up playing as, you get a special ability that you have the whole game. And you get a special ability that you unlock after you build your stronghold, which, you know, depending on your race. Some races, I'll play it where I have to build the stronghold first turn because otherwise that that um, special ability is going to be wasted, and I need those sweet, sweet actions ASAP. Whereas others, I'm like, I could just ignore the stronghold the whole game. It doesn't affect me at all, and it, I don't care. Um, which makes every game you know, interesting and different, where there's so many different strategies and so many different ideas at play. And there is a meta. There's like a very strong meta at this point where it's like a tier list, almost like a Smash Bros game. We're like, <laughs> that's exactly you know, what I was thinking. You know, like Final Destination, no items. You can only play these characters. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are definitely those uh, races that are very underpowered. Uh, the Fakirs, I believe, is like lowest tier. If I recall correctly, they're like um, a bunch of uh, carpet riders 
who can fly around and hop spaces uh, on the board, which is pretty neat. But uh, there have been fixes to try and sort of balance that out where each player starts with a different number of points based on uh, which race they are. So if it's a lower tier character, they start with more points to work with and stuff like that, which is interesting. And points end up acting as a resource in the long term because you can spend points in specific circumstances to gain uh, power, which can then be used for other actions, so on and so forth. So there's all of these different unique aspects to it. And I find the puzzle to be constantly rewarding and constantly exciting to bring to the table. Uh, The expansion adds uh, two new colors and a colorless character uh, to answer your previous question. So the colors are uh, volcano. The terrains are volcano and ice, which is interesting. And how those function is those uh, characters start on a terrain of their type, but uh, for the sake of startup, they choose a color that no one else is playing. Okay. So, like, let's say um, the yellow player. There's no yellow player. Uh, the uh, volcano species, race, whatever can choose to adopt that temporarily as their home terrain and then set up volcano spots on the board in that manner. Mm-hmm. And then after the setup, uh, there are specific rules for those races on how they build. So for instance, after setup, the um, volcano races use uh, resources to terraform to their type. Um, the acolytes spend magic levels on their track and the, uh, dragon lords or whatever they're called, uh, consume their own power, their own like resource in order to do that, which is interesting. And the ice, uh, species, um, basically just permanently adopt that specific, uh, space as their home terrain. Yeah. But they still have to spend at least a shovel to transform their home terrain to an ice home terrain. Okay. So how how is this potentially a detriment? Like, what's the risk here? Well, as, as you might imagine, the rules are a little bit convoluted okay. in terms of how they play out. Because it's like, all right, who's playing what colors? Okay, I have to choose a color. And if both the uh, volcano and the ice species are in the game, they both have to choose different neutral colors to then become their two things and then it's like all right everyone's picked their frigging colors um but now they have their own rules on how to terraform and stuff and like the the resources they have to spend is a little wonky and that's not even getting into the colorless races because the colorless races are actually proven to be broken um right out of the box there one of them is overpowered and one of them is like not useful at all and in an extensive amount of errata that came out for it, the one colorless race was nerfed into the ground, and the other race was nerfed even though they weren't very good anyway. <laughs> this is crazy to hear like an errata list, you know, something I associate with CCGs, something I associate with, you know, uh, video games. To oh, have yeah. it come out in a box board game is is pretty crazy. Occasionally, you'll get new editions or new versions, but I think that's a, if anything, a testament to the existing and persistent fan base for Terra Mystica that the developer yeah. would even consider 
releasing some official statement that from now on, this is how the game is intended to be played. Not just future versions, but here are the fixes, here are the official rules if you want to run tournaments or even in your casual play. This is how this game is meant to be played, which is crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, so I've basically removed the colorless races from the game because they're just not worth dealing with the amount of nonsense that are around that. And honestly, they're just kind of obnoxious and a little confusing at times to use. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the other two races you can use in more advanced groups as long as someone who's played the game a few times is one of the players who uses those roles because otherwise that can just be a little bit too much um, yeah. for especially someone who's their first time now, not in a million years. Uh, but other than that, the expansion adds alternate ways of scoring the game and um, – a, like turn-by-turn turn or like end-of-the-game scoring? End-of-the-game scoring. Basically, they add uh, you get to add one extra tile to the side of the board that uh, relates to your cities in some capacity. And it has the same scoring as cities. So whoever is the most gets 16, then 8, and then 4. And the different stuff is like having the most buildings along the border of the map. Okay. Or having two cities that are furthest away from each other on the board stuff like that yeah so yeah here's my hot take on terra mystica and this may be a fairly (laughs) unpopular one or i don't know (laughs) maybe um everything that i got out of that game i get so much better out of terraforming mars um and i bear with me i realize they're they're not too similar um, yeah, but the uh, resource management aspect, um, and, and don't get me wrong, I am a diehard fantasy guy. I love Tolkien, A Song of Ice and Fire. I I love, um, you know, everything from <laughs> from like Redwall to you know, I, I just love fantasy themes in general, high fantasy, you know, Dungeons and Dragons type of stuff, but terraforming or Terra Mystica, the, the theme gets completely obfuscated to the point where like it, it truly is an abstract game, which is okay. I like a lot of abstract games, but many abstract games manage to, to keep some sort of theming still, some sort of structure. And even that, because of the overall crunchiness uh, and that there's some real things that that mechanisms aren't even attempting to mirror some actual uh thematic reasoning that that all instances of it being a fantasy game are pretty much dropped for me aside from picking your characters like at the beginning like picking your race is like oh this race versus this race you know it's so so cool looking and i I love the components i love the look of the game um but it's those those mechanics that are just in there solely to be mechanisms in a tightly balanced heavy euro game that that just really really don't do it for me um Mm -hmm. whereas terraforming mars for example i get that there's more randomness out of the cards you know you can do drafting to to mitigate some of that or you could just draw cards but 
Uh, to me, I like the, the exploratory nature of the cards coming up. What am I going to do with my resources? How am I going to harness the capabilities of my faction? How am I going to use my resources to the best possible way? And the the proximity aspect of Terra Mystica is in Terraforming Mars in a different way. But mm-hmm. the fact that I care about positioning related to my opponents, um, the, the systems involved feel much more integrated, whereas in... Terra Mystica, they feel more disparate. You know, the the cult track doesn't have nearly as much impact on each of the other individual systems. It may matter for game scoring reasons, uh, and you may be able to combine certain systems in order to uh, reach certain objectives, but it it feels less like an ecosystem where everything is subtly affecting everything else and i think this is more a reflection of where i am as a player of board games rather than on the game itself but Mm -hmm. you know there's something about terra mystica that felt like every game i was i was trying to do the same thing better like each of my factions may have different abilities i may have different strategies but what you were talking about earlier with uh, like tier lists and everything, there's a prescribed strategy for how each of the races should approach their first turn. You know, what are the things that you should really strive for and only subtle variations in that based off of turn scoring. Uh, And you do have to account for what your opponents are doing. You can't always take the optimum strategy, but you're always really striving for that and striving to do the best almost like a game of chess or something Mm -hmm. whereas i want a game especially a game that's about environments about changing environments about seeing these asymmetric races at play i want something that that gives me lots of tools and then a degree of unpredictability to see what I can do with that. And, and that is absolutely the kind of game that I'm looking for and why tearing terror. I keep on mixing up my Terras here. Why my, <laughs> my favorite game probably of 2016 was terraforming Mars and Terra Mystica ended up being something that I played. I enjoyed, but I liked the concept more than the execution and traded away. Sure, I, I can get where you're coming from there. And my instinct when you were first uh, talking was to suggest checking out Gaia Project, which is the sister sequel to Terra Mystica that improves upon it, has a space theme and all of that. But from what you're telling me, it probably won't do enough to sway that. Yeah, and I, I, I get that, you know. And also one of the main draws of Terra Mystica itself was the fantasy theme. Taking it yeah. to space is not going to make it more fascinating to me. Um, well, the only the the only mechanical change that comes out of it is the magic track is changed to a technology track where rather than manipulating, you know, the power levels and stuff like that, you get technologies almost immediately when messing with that. And depending on the type of technology you're researching, you get tools very early on that you get to use. Hmm. hmm. I, and that's I, I still yeah. want to check it out. I mean, there there are games that. I don't love that I think are still interesting to talk about. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. the great thing about any sort of medium in general. You know, the I, I love music so much that 
even if I don't like a band, it's still worth listening to to understand myself more as to why I don't like that band. Contextualizing this stuff is, is nice and why other people may like it. The same thing kind of holds true with uh, <laughs> I get a lot of flack for um, the fact that I didn't like Voyages and Marco Polo, which was another, you know, real Euro-y Euro game uh, in spite of the dice rolls in it. And uh, that's one that just didn't do it for me. And I, I love Euro games, you know. I, I The midweight Euro is kind of my go-to, but for whatever reason, I, I, some of these games that develop these really diehard fan bases just haven't clicked for me. And I think it's because I need a, a, a sense of empowerment and a, a sense of unpredictability and figuring out ways to to manage the the situations at hand but right. you know i i want to get to uh the news uh and some things that um we wanted to talk about but just uh wanted to hit mm-hmm. on a couple games that i had a chance to play recently um it was great breaking out terraforming mars recently that hadn't played that in a while still trying to get used to the hellas and elysium boards as uh, the first expansion that came out i haven't checked out venus next yet but that's the latest expansion and there's a whole line of expansions that are coming out for that and i i'm a little bit dubious on whether or not those are going to be cool but the even though i haven't checked out venus next the next expansion after that is supposed to give a little bit more boost to your startup so that way you you have an initial focus to add on to your asymmetric power which is something that i'm really looking forward to um the other day when we were finishing doing a bunch of renovations we're like let's just play a game relax for a while uh, we broke out Spirit Island, which I'm still absolutely loving. I'm working on a review of the expansion for that. And then the other things that have been taking up a lot of my time, um, I've been playing a lot of Flam Rouge, getting prepared mm-hmm. for the review that I put up uh, like a week ago or so, which was a lot of fun because I, I did the review. I, I try not to do too many gimmicky things, but this one um, I did most of the narrative for the review on my bike because I'm a huge fan of cycling and I'm a huge fan of Flam Rouge. And I was like, man, I want to do something that, you know, showcases Southeast Alaska. So I'll get a GoPro, mm. I'll figure out a way of recording audio. And it actually came out really good. Um, the nice. review itself has tons of overlays. And then I also did some narrative that's on a traditional microphone. So that way, you know, it's <laughs> for anyone who's like, oh, God, I don't want to suffer through a guy talking on a bike for 10 minutes. It's it's a lot more than that. But I, I think it gives it a degree of flair that is worth checking out. Um, sure, absolutely. It's and, a neat idea. Yeah. And if if you haven't, uh, have you played Flammers? I have not. It's been on my... I'd like to give it a try list for a really long time now. I, I think you would find it interesting at the bare, bare minimum. It's mm-hmm. What's so cool about it is that it's... It, <laughs> there's almost nothing to it, and yet once you've played a game, you feel like you understand the, the few mechanisms within it in order to do better. And that level of skill growth 
each and every game is awesome. And that's not to say that it's, you know, something like Go, where there's infinite levels <laughs> of, of uh, deep and complex strategy that you could end up mastering over years and years. But mm-hmm. um, the, the basics are that you have a deck for two different riders. You are playing cards based off of that deck and almost like a deck building type of system. Um, where you get to the bottom of the deck, you shuffle it, but every turn each of your riders gets to play one card and then you move your rider that many spaces, but everyone's selecting their cards at the same time, everyone reveals them, everyone moves all of their two riders. And then based off of positioning at the end of every round, once everyone's moved, then you determine who benefits from slipstream in the peloton mm-hmm. in classic cycling fashion, and of then course. who uh, ends up, um, who ends up. Uh, sorry, I was getting a phone call and it was coming through on my phone as uh, well as my laptop. There, mm-hmm. um, you determine who benefits from slipstream and moves forward, and then who gets exhaustion cards added to your deck, which. Okay, which are like dead cards, right? Yeah, they're like dead cards. So you still move based off of them, um, but they they suck to have their their two movement, which is the lowest amount of movement that you can have in a turn. And unlike a deck building game, every time you play a card, it's permanently removed from your deck. So if you play your best card, that card is out. I think the sprinter has three cards that have nine movement, which is a huge amount of movement, but you got to conserve those for the right moment. And because everything in this game is about positioning in relation to your fellow riders and everyone's playing their cards at the same time, it means that there's always a degree of suspense as you're selecting your cards and then flipping them. And it happens so fast is just a really quick tempo to the game that distills excitement into every single turn it is wonderful it is my favorite racing game that i've ever played and it's something that to me just is a a master class in game design minimalism i'm not Mm -hmm. saying that it's something that i'd want to go to every time i play a game um but there's something about it that just really has gotten its hooks into me it's something really cool it's upbeat it's exciting it's thrilling it's suspenseful uh and it's really really approachable um so i I think anyone who has written off race games should at least check it out i'm not saying Mm -hmm. go out and buy it I, i don't think it's even uh massively available or at least for a long time it was kind of hard to get a copy of it but it it is definitely worth some of the buzz that it's had for the last kind of year and a half or so then well it's got an expansion coming out for it soon if i recall correctly so yeah and i'm working on a review of that as well uh peloton it adds a couple extra players and then it adds um uh, like the, the you set up tiles that make up the racetrack in the game and for the mm-hmm. most part all the tiles are two lanes which matters in the context of the game itself And these new tiles either create three-lane sections or one-lane sections, which you can still bypass riders, but within the, the, the tightness of the game, that's going to make for some really interesting sections that you're going to have to account for in in different ways which is really kind of what the the game is is having these 
simple cards, no abilities. They just have numbers on them. You're looking at them in the, your hand and you're saying, what is the risk of me using each of these cards? Is this the right time to use one of these cards? What do I think my opponents are going to play uh, based mm -hmm. off of where they are and what cards I know that they've already exhausted out of their deck, that type of thing. So it just yeah. gives you more things to consider within the, the existing confines, which is, is subtle. It's nice. Uh, it doesn't make it any more complicated, just a little bit more fun. So, mm -hmm. you know, review coming in for that soon. And the, I'm excited to check that out because, like I said, it's a game I've been looking at for a long time. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you should. It's really, really cool. Um, then the two other games, one I'm just going to hit on really quick. Uh, the Quest for El Dorado, I think it's called. It's a new okay. Kinesia game. It was up for mm -hmm. uh, the Spiel recently. Maybe it won a Kinner Spiel. I'm not sure. Uh, or maybe it was just a runner-up to King Domino. I think that's it. Um but anyway, it was really refreshing playing a Reinar Knizia game that came out recently that was like really smart and clever and innovative. And it was also really fun playing a deck building game that I actually enjoy and felt like it was fresh because deck building games are really, really tiresome to me at this point. Like I, I, I hate Same. the idea of shuffling my deck a bazillion times, choosing what card I want to buy with the resources I have right now. Uh, yeah. But how it was tied to a board where you are trying to move and explore across different environments, the relatively simple decisions that you can make and what you want to add to your deck and how you modify that deck, it, it was a, a really streamlined and interesting take a Knizian take on deck building. And so it, it was it was cool. I, I don't know that it's something that I'd run out and buy. I played a friend's copy, but it's something that I'm definitely going to be texting him later today and being like, hey, there's this other game that I want to play for game night, but if you want to play that, we could probably sneak it in. It only played in about an hour or so, which was really nice. So... Um, just always, always fun getting a new Kenitsu game to the table because all of his classics are from like 10 years or more ago mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and then the last game that I've played a bunch of is something that I was sent a review copy for the Kickstarter is going up soon. It's Plane Crafters, or I think the full name is, um, uh, what is it? Pennington or uh, Master Master Pennington J Nicker Knacker the 16th and the Plane <laughs> Crafters or something like that it is something that is very evocative of early 20th century uh, aviation and mm -hmm. it's very cool you're building these planes um, I, I like the game a lot it's a light game the most interesting thing about it to me is that it has almost a smacking of engine building, though it, nothing to the point where you're really customizing an engine. You're just making yourself a little bit more efficient uh, okay. with each edition, um, but never so synergistic that you have a completely distinct machine one game from the next. Um, right. But as a light game, a very approachable game, 
uh, where you're building these planes that are preposterous and super fun looking. Uh, it, it's a good introduction to things like that. Also, I think it's it's worth noting that I think a meteor game exists within the existing components. Uh, and I, I think I'm going to put this in my review and also mention it to the designers of the game that uh, a variant that would essentially make it so you had to choose what actions you take in your turn. Because as mm -hmm. of right now, what you do is you can recruit a specialist to your side, which costs money, money is points. Um, but the specialist gives you some sort of benefit, some sort of power. That's your engine building aspect. And then kind of like in a ticket to ride fashion, you draw cards from a deck or face up from a table in kind of a card river type of situation, which is also, um, you know, great. It's something that's going to help you out. That gives you the resources to then build a plane, which you can do on your turn. You're limited to two parts being added to a plane. And then if you have a completed plane, you can sell a plane in your turn. Mm -hmm. And all that is great, except for there's no real opportunity cost. On my turn, I can buy the best possible person, get the best possible plane parts, add the best possible plane parts to my plane, and then sell my plane if I so choose to. I think that if a variant were added where you had to choose to do one of those things on your turn, mm -hmm. it would make for snappier turns, but also it would give you reason for saying, is it really important right now that I get these plane parts before someone else grabs them? Or do I get the specialist who's going to really help me out before someone buys that? The opportunity cost involved is is, is something that I find is a, a trademark of some middleweight, kind of light to middleweight games that are very, again, Canadian uh, or like Bruno Catala does a lot of that type of stuff where you have to make strong choices about what you even want to do in your turn and it makes for simple turns but you're worrying much more about what you're leaving available to everyone else so i i think that that is something that would at least be a fan variant that could be put out there and i mm -hmm. i hope that the designers of the game actually consider something like that because it, it's it's a very cool game. It's a beautiful game. As it stands, it's still really family-friendly, uh, light and fun. Um, it'd be something that I could totally see someone breaking out at the end of a game night. Um, totally acceptable as is, but I, I think there is the possibility of a meteor game out there. But their mm -hmm. Kickstarter goes up here in like a week or so. So I okay. uh, hope it works out for them because that's a, a great game with a, a real great look to it, too. Sure, absolutely. <sighs> All right. I just is like, machine gun some games there. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. I hear you. But um, <laughs> I wanted to get to some of this news stuff. So you put some news on here. Yeah, I got a couple of quick pieces of news to touch on. So like I mentioned before, the Mysterious Manor Kickstarter went up yesterday. And full disclosure, I'm actually um, quoted on the page um in some capacity in support of the game uh so you know and i'm like i said i'm going to be doing some play testing of it so i'm obviously at least to some degree attached to and involved with the project in a, a fairly minor manner but i'm definitely invested in it and the game was funded in 24 minutes if i recall correctly that sounds about um, right 
Yeah. Um, there's a number of different uh, extras that have already been revealed. Um, one of the most exciting things that, that everyone unlocked yesterday, let me see here, um, there is a variant on the night from the uh, base game that will be coming with this. Uh, it is a, a grizzled version of the knight who's been, uh, you know, through a few things and has new equipment, new mechanics attached to her. Battered um, around. And will she be available to use in both Crystal Caverns and Mysterious Manor? So currently how that's playing out is uh, as we play test the game and as we continue to move forward, um, the rules are going to be updated to clarify how things are going to be able to be moved between one and the other because uh, fundamental mechanics of how the manor works versus how the cave works are different enough where um, certain roles would need to be slightly modified potentially to be utilized. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the paladin relies on uh, finding shrines to get uh, points of uh, light, I think it's called, magic, I, f- I forget offhand, but he can basically uh, earn his resource by coming across these shrines, a uh, uh, tile type that is not in the base game. So figuring out how those you know, characters can swap is something that's still being worked on. Um, but I can definitely... I can definitely imagine that uh, the Knight variant in particular will be an easy swip swap. Um, And we've also unlocked um, more skeletons. So now you can customize your team of skeletons for each game because you can only have a team of five. And uh, there's seven so far unlocked and there are more to be unlocked down the road. How do you feel about Kickstarters and stretch goals at this point? Because... I, I got to believe that Leader Games went into this knowing full well that it was going to fund within the first day and our actual expected amount that we're going to get is, you know, twice that funding level, three times, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and actually had these stretch goals ready to be revealed. And it's probably oh, yeah. nowhere near as salacious as something like, say... Um, cool mini or not which you know knows for a fact that they're going to have these stretch goals and then they reveal the stretch goals at benchmarks just beyond the current funding level throughout the campaign Mm -hmm. which is really frustrating to me um oh i I, agree i I do not like their their practices uh and i think they are the worst offender in this because when they're at like 500% of the initial ask, and then they're like, and here's one more stretch goal that if we just get another $5,000, we'll get to. It's like, you would have unveiled that stretch goal at this date, no matter what the price level was at, and said $5,000 is all you need more, because you're just trying to generate buzz and keep people backing, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's a valid strategy, you know, it works, and... You know, but it's I, a I manipulative company problematic. Yeah, it's manipulative for sure. And I would much rather just say, hey, here is what we want the game to be. And then at least on the outset, have the stretch goals listed and then have a frank conversation with your backers. If you exceed all the stretch goals right away and say, look, here are some things that we are are hoping to work on. We're, you know, 
coming up with some ideas. We'll have some stretch goal announcements soon. But if you already have the beautiful sculpts already made and you're like, oh, we can just make this if we get just a few more dollars on this campaign, whatever. You already commissioned those sculpts. You know exactly what's going to happen. You were planning on this. Um, so some of that is really frustrating to me. But I wanted to get your take because you're you're the budget board gamer guy. You know, you've since I've known you, you've been so focus on like conscientious spending being wary of companies trying to manipulate your heartstrings for money that kind of stuff you know where do you fall on stretch goals it's a very good question because uh stretch goals and i in the past have had a very uh problematic relationship uh a while back i backed um the expansions for champions of midgard which is one of my favorite worker placement games but I realized after the fact that the games were already pre-printed. They were pre-produced, and the game was released within three months of the Kickstarter ending. So clearly, they had the ability, they had the means of making it regardless, and I kind of accidentally fell into a trap of funding something that needed no funding, to mm-hmm. be honest. And a lot of Kickstarter companies, in my opinion, abuse the, si- the system in a way where I, I back very few things on Kickstarter generally. Looking at my list, because I'm on my page right now, I've backed one, two, three, four, five, maybe six things ever. Mm-hmm. Once I'm clicking on the view all. Uh, one of those things was the Shovel Knight uh, game. And the others were a couple of board games for companies that I really believed in the product. Well, first off, this, good taste on video games. Shovel Knight was excellent. I, oh, it still is. It's It just keeps on giving. Yeah, well, I, I I didn't check it out when it was initially hot, but when I got my Switch and it came out with the other, I think, two campaigns on that, I absolutely loved it, played through all of those Um and it's a beautiful homage to games of the past while doing some really interesting stuff with uh, with modern game design sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, back to uh, Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, I've always had a difficulty with picking games ever to Kickstart just because I'm so selective about it. Um, Vast is one of those games that... I feel like the company is still uh, new enough mm-hmm. and still working on producing games where they can use the funding. Right. While I don't always appreciate or agree with how the stretch goals kind of play out or how you know they're used as that you know very unsubtle manipulative tactic, I feel like it's become such a staple of Kickstarter that it's. I don't want to say a necessary evil because it's not, but it can be. Yeah. And in this case, in this case, I don't mind it as much. And I, I, it's a part of that is, yeah, more content for like my favorite game series that's been out for, you know, in the, for the last few years, this is my favorite style of game that's come out in a very long time. And I'm willing to recognize and admit that. But the other thing for me is that, so unlike the base game, this version is going to be coming out with miniatures specifically, meaning that with each uh, each edition that they are making, they are making 
more miniatures for content and half of the stretch goals is just minis for content that's already there and so i can understand upgrading the quality of components more so than adding additional components um the biggest thing for me is whether stretch goals are going to be kickstarter exclusive or not that's really the big either make it or break it for me because if you're Creating content that's exclusive to Kickstarter, you lose a certain level of my respect automatically because mm-hmm. that's it's there's manipulative and then there's just that's messed up. It's not okay. It's not you know I have Avalon and I love uh, the Resistance Avalon, but there's content out there that I cannot get anymore because I wasn't in board gaming when that Kickstarter hit. And indie boards and cards is like nope, can't get that anymore. Sorry. And that's really, really frustrating and irritating and it feels unfair and it feels unrewarding. Uh, None of this content for this specific uh, instance is Kickstarter exclusive. You know, all of this is going to be made available in some capacity. And um, so for me, I, you know, don't mind that as much. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it it's uh, it's difficult for me to talk about this because I'm so invested in the game and I want it to succeed. And yeah, there's so much and, about and, it that I enjoy, and that's okay. You know? And you're you're transparent about it as well. And you know, like I I said earlier, you know, I've had representatives of Leader Games. I've had Patrick Leader on the show in the past. You know, I mm-hmm. I don't know that I would say I owe Patrick a debt, but he certainly had a, a huge impact on us getting our initial starts on the show. And I'm very, very grateful to him for that. And I, mm-hmm. in in no way do I think that leader games is gouging uh, the audience. And oh no, not at all. I, I just think the system itself is interesting now that we're several years in and it's <laughs> not like, Alien Frontiers at one time was the the biggest game to have come out on Kickstarter, and that was when people were first figuring out what stretch goals even were. Now it's kind of an established system, and I'm not even too concerned anymore about the bigger boys hopping in the, to the the arena here the only thing I don't necessarily like about the cool mini or nots the gray fox games putting their stuff on Kickstarter is that it it drags a lot of attention to them and mm-hmm. it kind of takes the spotlight away from other smaller projects which is a shame because I I want to see more uh new independent companies happen but you know the the argument could be made that it introduces more people to Kickstarter, which overall elevates the the status of all games that are mm-hmm. happening on Kickstarter. So the the only thing that I'm really particularly concerned about is ju- just making sure that there's a, a degree of transparency and that it's not just overt manipulation. And I completely agree with you on the exclusive stuff that especially if it's gameplay exclusives it is just a bummer to not have that available not mm-hmm. that i need to chase every promo out there but i want everyone to have the opportunity to get that stuff and it, it sucks having this secondhand market that is 
drives these prices up so much. And I know for companies like, let's say, Cool Mini or not, they very much enjoy this because it creates the fear of missing out, the sense of desperation that when the Kickstarter comes along, that even if you're like, oh man, I don't know if this game's going to be good or not, but I missed out on all that Blood Rage content, and I definitely don't want to do that again, so I'm going to pick up Rising Sun right now, because, and I better back it at the highest level, or, well, I guess Rising Sun only really had one level, but there was still Kickstarter exclusive stuff that encouraged people to get it because they were afraid that they would never have the opportunity to get the exclusive content again, which is true and gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that, Rising that Sun. Sucks. Rising Sun, I think, was a problematic project that we're still, to some degree, feeling the effects of, and I'm uh, uh, I'm not a huge fan of that game fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the amount of hype and stuff that went around it, and I feel like uh, hate at least was a game that was like Kumani are not kind of getting their, their, you know, feeling the repercussions of that format Yeah. because the moment that that game was even announced, people were like giving it garbage constantly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, they certainly were. I mean, well, I don't know how well it did, but you know, well, there, there were a few pieces of news that I also wanted to get to, and I know you have at least one other thing uh, that oh, I yeah, wanted sure. to talk about here. Um, there are two controversies I, I just barely wanted to hit on, and I don't know that I really have a hot take on them. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the two are, one, there's a game, Nostromo, uh, that was announced and it's like an alien themed game nostromo is the ship from alien one and uh wonder dice was putting this out and then an official statement came out by this like collective of game designers i think the statement may have actually been written by bruno Feduti. i may have that wrong uh but the long and short of it was that uh, this game design was essentially a complete ripoff of a previous submission that mm-hmm. a designer that was part of this community of designers in France had given to Wonder Dice, and then Wonder Dice said, yes, we'll publish this, then later on said, no, we're not going to publish this, and then came out with a game that was essentially that that game in its whole form. Um, right. With any of these articles, I'm going to put the links to everything in the uh, comments or in the um, show notes here. But really, this is just a one of the things that I, I think that board games and tabletop gaming is going to have to do some growing up in order to moderate this. And I think the community has done an overall good job of sussing out what the truth is uh, mm-hmm. and you know, making decisions on what to buy or not to buy based off of your personal ethics. What I'd hate to see is that more laws get written, whether it's in France or the United States, as a result of this. Because for a a long time, the existing thing that you could say is that you can't copyright game mechanics. And that I, I find that to be a good thing. Uh, something that allows for innovation to happen. And then if someone is blatantly ripping off, like just wholesale ripping off a game, then you could 
choose not to buy that game and have that be a failed project that cost the creators a ton of money. Now, you can copyright theme of game or names of games, names of certain aspects of it, but you know that's how we have so many different CCGs, so many different deck building games, so many different tile placement games that are close to the original, but yeah. in order to be successful, you should have something that changes up the formula and does something different and it, it, it's one of those things where it's hard to describe what makes the difference between being inspired by something versus being something that is a complete knockoff and i think it's worth um people to do a little bit of research and so with these two uh news items that i was going to mention i really encourage people to just look at some of the discussion online and become a little bit more educated and aware of what this looks like and how you personally feel about it and just kind of make up your mind about how you want to support game companies and what you are comfortable with and deciding how you want to spend your dollars from there. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. And then the the second one is <laughs> I think more of a bummer because of its proximity to a beloved game. And that's, uh, Jakob Rizalski's art debacle. Uh, with yeah. Scythe. And for those of you who don't know, Jakob Rizalski is the artist, uh, behind, uh, this like world war one plus aesthetic, the, the mechs in these European landscapes that, uh, was the inspiration for Scythe. The way Scythe was uh, conceived was that this artwork was featured on Kotaku, and this artist was featured on Kotaku, a video game uh, media outlet online. Jamie Stegmeier ended up going onto Kotaku, and he saw this art, and he was like, man, I've been looking for great themes for a board game, so mm -hmm. I'm going to reach out to this guy, say, hey, can we commission you to do artwork and we do a board game set in this world that you've started creating. And that's the birth of Scythe. The debacle comes in, in that there are some accusations that I guess have been coming up for a while now, but they really hit their flashpoint maybe about a month ago or a few weeks ago on mm -hmm. Reddit and BGG where the accuser is saying that Jakob Rosalski claims that he only uses uh, reference photos, uh, but there is evidence that he is tracing, that he's photo bashing. He's essentially taking the original art and modifying it rather than just using it as inspiration for a new thing. And there's tons of examples, and some of them are really overt, and some of them are really small little items in an overall much, much larger painting. And mm -hmm. the problem, or at least the problem as I see it, uh, because I believe in transformative art. Like, I, I love music that uses samples in clever ways. I, I love, you know, when an artist subverts uh, an existing picture and utilizes it uh, in clever ways. I mean, like, look at Shepard Fairey's Obama, you know, the the famous 
uh, painting that's uh, the blue and red or not even painting digital artwork that became like the Obama picture for his entire presidential campaign. Um, legally speaking, there's definitely some problematic copyright issues in both music, visual art, board games. Um, but creatively speaking, as someone who makes art myself, like there is artistry involved and skill involved in creatively changing some original into something new, but you have to acknowledge the original art as well. Like you, you can't say <laughs> like vanilla ice, you know, we didn't sample under pressure. Theirs goes ding, 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 da, da, ding, 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 da, da, ding, ding. Whereas ours goes ding, 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 da, da, ding, 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 ding. No, you are absolutely sampling the original. You may be making some modification, but mm -hmm. you have to credit the source and, and it becomes extremely problematic ethically when you don't, uh, and if you're claiming that it's a different technique than it is, you know, if you're copying, then say you're copying to a degree, right. you know, if you're photo bashing, you know, taking a digital image and then making alterations, uh, to it, to skew it, to overlay it, that it becomes somewhat obfuscated of what it originally was, claim it. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't think we're ever going to have any proof in the resolution of this, um, fortunately, I, I think Stonemeyer Games has come out looking overall fairly positive in that the artwork was commissioned in good faith. And I think that in the future, Jamie Stegmeyer will probably take precautions in order to make sure that any sort of work that is either uh, photo references or even copied artwork or anything is given credit to the original artist. But whether or not there's proof, I think there's always going to be a cloud around Psy where this discussion mm. will persist because the artwork of the game was not just a major focal point of what makes the game look great on the table, but was also the direct inspiration for the game. Yeah, I mean, here, here's the thing for me personally. I I see the problems with uh, the practice at hand. I see, you know, and I and I totally agree that you know when you're utilizing someone else's work, you should be giving credit to that work as best as you can. Um, I don't necessarily see all of this as as big of a deal as I think everyone is making it out to be. Um, and the fundamental reasoning behind that is because everything is in some way a, a remake. Everything mm -hmm. is, you know, building off of something else. It's derivative. Um, look at, yeah, look at Star Wars. Star Wars is derivative of samurai films, westerns, like a ton of different, you know, there's a huge amount of inspiration for something that's wildly popular in this day and age. And everyone would say, you know, Star Wars is so original and whatnot, but it's really just it's, it's a huge combination of a bunch of different inspirations um art is the same way and while you know certain uh pieces of art were used as inspiration and to some degree tracings you know that's undeniable i think at this point looking at this the um you know sources that were presented as you know 
the the templates, I guess you could say, for this. The art in the most cases are so drastically transformed that um, you know they take on a different tone, a different meaning, a different theme altogether. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that you know obviously there's issue behind the claims of him not you know, outright stating that he was, you know, using these resources as, you know, a part, a part of his uh, process. But I don't think that takes away from the originality of the vision that he was creating. You know, if you look at, well, and if you look at the sources that he's pulling from, um, there was stuff that was like, I want to say there was something pulled from like a comic book, and then there was something else that was pulled from like, you know, the sources that he were pull- he was pulling from were not directly related to the theme of Scythe, in my opinion. And let me I'm going to try and pull up the imagery so I can actually make some concrete references here. Yeah. And but, it, it, it I completely agree that there's, again, originality, there's artistry, there's skill involved in making something new and your own. And, you know, the part of the success is that Scythe looked like nothing else that had reached that level of attention. You know, there are other, you know, World War One, World War Two era style games with mechs, you know, or other media, but not in quite the same feeling and same tone and I still stand by it. It's an absolutely gorgeous looking game. If anything, what I think the persistent effect is going to be is that the people who want to hate on the giants, you know, people who enjoy taking down the things that people love are going to have just one more, one more tool in their toolbox to say like, oh yeah, and you know that artwork totally ripped off. You know, and it, it's just going to be this this kind of murky thing that will will exist. You know, just like how you know tons of people will be quick to say, "Oh, Star Wars, yeah, Star Wars is great," but you know, it's totally all George Lucas's wife who you know saved that movie. George Lucas had no talent whatsoever. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, she was involved, but you're just trying to undermine someone's they were part of the creative team they they were part of the visionary um mm-hmm. there were just other aspects involved here and and people love taking down the the giants well and from what i'm looking at here many of the the references that he uses are photographs mm-hmm. you know some of it is art uh like there's a screenshot from The Witcher that strongly resembles one of the things that uh, – one of the images that he drew. But a lot of it is photographs of like soldiers riding horses or um, you know, a, a bunch of pigs walking around a field, that kind of thing. And so yes, you know, pictures, uh, photographs are art in their own right. But I feel like the transformation of – one thing, you know, a photo of reality to a more fantastical viewpoint is something that's done pretty prominently in art, you know, day to day. And no one really thinks anything of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Well, it's again one of those things that I think that there's a lot of discussion going on. The BGG thread is huge. Uh, oh, I'm yeah. going to put a link in the comments here to that BGG thread, and I, I encourage people to check it out, uh, figure out where you stand on it, and, and try mm -hmm. to think about it from different perspectives, and also how you would feel about it as it relates to different media. Do you feel differently about music sampling other artists? Do you feel different about visual art? What about if it were game mechanics, that kind of stuff? And you know, come up with your own position and and just be more informed as you're supporting games and practices. Now, mm -hmm. the the last thing that I wanted to mention, as far as a news item from me, well, there's two things. One, uh, this is the looming doom. Uh, there's a part of me that's like anti-disestablishmentarianist that is afraid of dystopian oh, futures with yeah. giant companies and asmodee is exploring sale uh there was a routers article about it and no other information but asmodee has collected all these brands all these companies into this massive conglomerate and is now exploring sale and on the one hand that maybe someone like hasbro would pick them up i don't know that i love that idea but no. you know hasbro has kept wizards of the coast alive it's kept magic the gathering and you know dungeons and dragons there, there's remnants of avalon hill still alive you know mm -hmm. maybe that would be okay but my fear is that some media company that isn't familiar with tabletop games would go oh this is now a company in a burgeoning industry that is making money uh let's go ahead and pick this up and essentially doesn't know how to float a ship in these waters but you know the ship is going to continue to sail one way or another and right. all these wonderful companies that have been woefully in my opinion collected by asmodee will um uh be under the banner of masters that don't really know what to do with it uh, fortunately, I believe in innovation. So if the worst case scenario happens, then, you know, other companies will stand up, you know, the leader games of the world will end up becoming bigger entities and they'll end up providing us awesome games. It's just kind of sad to see this, this huge compilation of companies and then potential sale. But then yeah. again, I was super worried when Marvel Comics was bought by Disney. And you know what? Marvel Comics are still pretty awesome. They they don't feel like they have inherently changed for the worse. Um, the whole movie discussion is a separate thing that we could have. But Yeah, that's that's a discussion you and I could, could go into detail for hours. At some yeah, point. The, the homogenization of the big budget summer action movie is something that I think is a direct result of Disney purchasing everything under the sun. Uh, I don't want that to happen in board games, but nope. anyway, uh, that, that's one other thing. But a happy thing, a positive thing, is that the Spiel nominees for this year are announced. Uh, Azul, Luxor, and The Mind are all up. Um, have you played any of those? Uh Azul, I have played a fair amount, and I quite enjoy Azul. Mm -hmm. It's a game that I'm looking to potentially uh, pick up at some point. I uh, definitely 
really dig the simple concept yet deep, um, uh, you know, uh, strategy over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely see that as kind of a shoe in at this point. Yeah, me to too. be honest, I don't Luxor. I know almost nothing about, and the mind I've heard good things about, but. Azul has just gotten so much press, you know, and I feel like it, it's just, you know, there. I, I don't see a situation where it doesn't win out. Right, right. Well, you know, there, there's been upsets in the past, but yeah. I, I completely agree. And it, it's something that looks and feels great. It, it's something that deserves attention. And I, I think is a good fit in the pantheon of spiel winners. Um mm-hmm. So we'll we'll see. You know, the some people are still really sore about Camel Up winning a few years ago, but um, you know, we'll we'll see what ends up shaking out of this. But I, I think Azul is definitely the favorite. It sounds like for you and I, that's the one yeah. that we're expecting and hoping will win. And um, you know, we'll we'll talk about the winners on a on a future episode. I don't know exactly who's up for the Kinner Spiel this year. The one real interesting thing that is worth reading is that uh, the uh, the Spiel board ended up uh, speaking up about why several games weren't nominated. First off, mm. you have to have a German release, so there's going to be some games that people really want to see nominations that that may be considered in the future, but they haven't had a German release yet. But uh, yeah. rule books, <laughs> they uh, said that there are so many games coming out now that if you have a terrible rule book, we're not even going to consider you. Like if we have to really, really work to figure out how your game works, we're not even going to consider you. And that's awesome. Like that's fantastic. It's fascinating and it's awesome because it sends a message that rule books are every bit as important of a component to a game as the rest of the things that you actually handle throughout the duration of the game. Mm. Teaching games is one of the most challenging aspects of getting people to play new games. And it should be that you pick up a game, you look at the rule book and you can easily absorb the information that it's trying to communicate so that you can actually play the game and it is a rarity to get clarity from a rule book without having to reference things online or have someone else teach a game so uh that's big kudos to anyone who has a really good rule book there have been some amazing ones and some interesting developments in recent history and also to all of the people who didn't get nominated or you know are making games for the future um you know, work harder on your rule books, make sure that there's clarity in them, that they're concise, that they're mm-hmm. easy to use as references and that you, you convey the both micro and macro level intentions of your game uh, throughout the entirety of the thing. So I thought that was kind of interesting and also very cool. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh Anything you you have one more on here? Uh, yeah, back I do to have Terra one Mystica. more on here. You're just back like the to Terra Mystica. We go. Yeah, Terra Mystica and Vast Guy. All right. Oh but... gosh. So like five or six years later, you know, it's been a while, Terra Mystica. We haven't heard anything from you. What's going on? What a new expansion is announced. 
the Gasp. age of innovation uh, was just announced for next year a little while back and very little is known about it and there's some speculation some people think that it's going to be the tech tree from the Gaia project being uh, added into Terra Mystica. Other people are speculating that it's going to be uh, a bunch of new uh, optional races to play as. No one's really sure of the specifics on it. All we know is that this uh, expansion is in the works. There was previously an expansion uh, suggested for... Uh, to add solo rules into the game after the solo variant on Gaia Project was very successful. Uh, if that's the case, that will be uh, added to this one as a uh, expansion. And it is a big box expansion. Uh, it will be the second great expansion directly from the game designers over here that should be published in 2019. So... I'm looking forward to seeing what is involved with it. I'm looking forward to see what information is provided for that. In the meantime, I still have to give Gaia Project a go, but I'm, I, more content is not necessarily a good thing, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was a bit of a bust last time. Hopefully this one won't require so much errata. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and here's the thing with that, like, I can still use two of the different new colors, theoretically. I'm going. I, I'm still kind of quote. I'm, I don't want to use the term playtest because it's released, but I playtest a lot of games that have already been released <laughs> to be like, does this really work? Does it not? So I'm currently in the process of doing that with those two. But the expansion adds enough other content to it where I feel like it's at wor worth at least checking out. Yeah. Um, the expansion, uh, even if not all piece of it, pieces of it are equal. Okay. But yeah, hopefully this time they release balanced characters from the get-go and there's not this whole, oh my goodness. Uh, I don't need uh, video game patches for my board games. That's why I ran away from that hoppy yeah. for the most part. Yeah. yeah, you don't need to look at extensive patch notes on a regular basis and make sure you're up to like turning code. Mm -hmm, exactly all right well um you know i think we're going to wrap it up here for the audience at home uh chris is going to be back and he is taking over as primary host of the show uh though he is also in the midst of moving right now which is why he's not on today's episode um, we're still kind of figuring out what we want tcbh hangouts to be but really this is kind of what I want to do is I, I want it to organically develop. I really like hanging out with Luke. I really like hanging out with Chris and Rob. And I like more group discussions about just various topics that are happening in the industry. There was mm -hmm. an episode topic that I had written down about what you do with used games. And Chris and mm -hmm. I had previously had some discussion. I think we may table that for a future episode, but Oh, yeah. Um, there's some ideas kind of rumbling around. In the past, we talked about crowd support and, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, launching a Patreon for Cardboard Herald, which thank you to all the patrons out there. That's been really amazing. Um, but for, you know, use games, I think we're going to be doing an episode in the future. You know, if you have any questions about use games, comments, thoughts on how you get rid of them, do you trade them, sell them? Do you just give them away? You know, let me know. Um, 
and that'll give us some extra stuff to discuss. Uh, if you have thoughts about the format of the show, then also email that in. You can just go to cardboardherald.com, and at the top of the page, there's a contact link, and you can just put in your message there because that feedback is helpful. And, you know, the intention of TCBH Hangouts from the beginning was that some of my favorite moments in the Cardboard Herald history has been when I've gotten together with friends that are either personal friends or friends of the uh, show, they're, um, you know, people who I'm interviewing, whoever it is. And it's just a group of excited people just talking about awesome stuff. And that isn't necessarily the most marketable idea out there, or maybe not the most targeted, but it's mm-hmm. the thing that's the most authentic and uh, enjoyable, you know, as if, I were just at the end of a long day that had nothing to do with board games, getting off of work, and then just hanging out with friends and talking about stuff that we actually really want to talk about and forming opinions on it. And I, I think that's what this is shaping into. And I'm glad that uh, Luke is on the show now, and I think you'll be seeing or hearing more from him. Um, and so, yeah, if you guys in the audience, girls in the audience, have any thoughts on what you'd like to see out of the show, let us know. Absolutely. Luke, thank you for coming on. Where where can people find you in between episodes of this and TCBH reviews and every other way that you're sneaking your way into the Cardboard Herald? Well, right now, um, we're, uh, we just released the new written review for Raiders of the North Sea. That should be up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be working on my next review, which I don't know if you want me to mention what yeah, that's on it. or not. Uh, Takedo, the deluxe edition, is what I just started working on earlier today to discuss that. And it's actually – I think you're going to be very happy with the direction I go with it. There's a lot of personal stuff involved with that game that I think will make into a uh, really interesting and engaging narrative involving it. I like it. Um, Additionally, uh, I finally finished editing my next video for Budget Board Gamer, and I've got the footage, and I'm going to start editing the next one already. I'm hoping to release that sometime later this week, so videos should be coming out a little bit more regularly for that moving forward. Is that on your channel or the games on That's going to That's going to be on my channel right now. Okay. Um, currently, there's some weird stuff going on with the website for Games on Tape, so I'm going to stick with my channel at least for the time being until all of that is figured out and finagled with so um budget board gamer on youtube uh and then obviously uh i'm going to be heading to origins so i may have some stuff about that moving forward um i'm going to be working for ninth level games there that's usually who i go to cons with so Cool. Um, you might see me involved in some of their work as well. Who knows? Awesome. Cool. Well, I, I have some projects here. I, I think I already mentioned for the most part, Flam Rouge just went online. That's on yep. our YouTube channel. And then Plane Crafters, I'll have the review probably uh, later this week, definitely before the Kickstarter goes live. Um, that is kind of like a preview since it's a, a prototype copy, but... Uh, it is honestly the most polished prototype copy of any game that I've played uh, or at least reviewed uh, for at this point. Now, I'll mention that in the review because, you know, I can't comment on uh, finished editions. I, mm. I have this really interesting project that I'm working on. I haven't mentioned it um, in any 
circles yet, but uh, for some reason, uh, I became the Dragon Dice guy on the internet, which was really weird, uh, because it's a game that came out in 95, which many, 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 many people do not play, and it has a very dedicated and loyal fan base, and I guess there weren't many videos put online that were of the, the degree of polish that I maybe did for my review. I just kind of did it on a on a lark, and I have a lot of affinity for the game, uh, even though I acknowledge that it, it is not something that is very well suited to modern audiences, and there's a lot of problems that I have with the distribution model. Um, I did a review that got huge response within the uh, Dragon Dice circles, and... Mm -hmm. Um, the company is looking at kickstarting a, uh, a reprint of one of the races for that. And they've asked me to do like a, how to play dragon dice video, uh, nice. which will be like their official how to play. Um, I've not done that to this point, but that's shaping up pretty well. Uh, it's not going to be something that is, um, too formal it'll still feel familiar to my other videos it'll be marketed a little bit different so that way it's completely transparent as to what the nature of the video is uh, right but it'll it'll be an interesting and cool project so if you're one of those people who joined aboard tcbh because of our dragon dice coverage that's a, a special little nugget that's coming for you um so that's pretty much it and of course tons of Reviews, interviews, all that kind of stuff. You can always check it out at cardboardherald.com. And as always, thank you to the patrons. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you to everyone out there. Uh, for the Cardboard Herald, I've been Jack and Luke's been Luke. And thank you for hanging out. <laughs>